Hello, dear listeners, Annie here. I have just a few announcements before this extremely lengthy episode that I did with Nay from Attack of the Queer Wolf on Candyman. First, I'm excited to tell you all that I'll be at the New Orleans Film Festival next week delivering my lecture on representations of fat women in American film and television. This is a free event. It's open to the public, and I'll be speaking on Friday, October 18th at 2.30 p.m. at the Blue Orleans Theater at the New Orleans Advocate. So check that out if you live in the area and check out the film festival as well. Some of the selections seem really great this year. Next, I want to take a minute to shout out my subscribers on Patreon. My income I generate from Patreon allows me to keep bringing you this show every week, and I'm truly honored that 44 of you subscribe. That's amazing. New Patreon shoutouts include, this is quite a list because I haven't done this in a minute, so bear with me, Hot Takes with Hot Dykes, which is a wonderful podcast hosted by Clara and Val, and you should definitely check them out and listen to them. They're fucking hilarious. Brianna Hoff. Gus Payway, Allie, Carissa Coffey, Isabella Fuller, Sakari Singh, Coco Carlson, Mars Hobricker, Lindsay Bentham, Vera Hayes, Angel, Olivia Monco, Paige McKinney, Morgan, Skyler, Andrea York, Shar Adams, Elizabeth Glaze, Leigh Run, Han Juicy, Ruby Joanna, Sally Benaz, and Erin McIntosh. Whew, thank you so much for bearing with me there. Um, I haven't shouted out people in a while, so I wanted to shout out everybody who hasn't gotten a shout out before. I also wanted to give a special shout out to my beautiful ex-girlfriend and close personal friend, Jinx Lear, who actually has a birthday this month on Halloween, October 31st no less. And Jinx is a love and sex witch. So that is extremely apt. Uh, You can follow her on Twitter at Jinx Lear. She's an amazing sex worker, rights activist, and actual fucking witch. So please go give her all of your money and praise immediately. And last order of business, I want to take a second to plug the work of my e-friend Hayden Smith. Hayden is a queer writer and disability rights activist who is the editor for the Deaf Poets Society, a journal for deaf and disabled writers and artists. His recently published short story, Rabbit Pie, is delightfully creepy and a perfect read for Halloween season. You can find the link to that on Hayden's Twitter at HayXSmith. So thank you for listening to that long preamble and enjoy the episode. You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Look in the mirror. You say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman. They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. 
just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Bernadette! It ain't safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Wanna know about Ruthie Jane? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? Now, she is about to discover. Helen? What's behind the mystery? You're sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all, come with me. What's behind the mirror? This is Annie Rose Malamut, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. And today I'm joined once again by Renee Beaver. Hi, Nay. Hi. <laughs> today, Nay and I are going to be talking about... Candyman from 1992. It's very exciting. Uh, Nay, when did you first see Candyman? Mm, I it probably was pretty soon after it came out. I definitely didn't see it in theaters because I was like seven or something. Right. <laughs> but uh, I was young enough to be terrified by it, <laughs> and I feel like I haven't been that kind of scared in many years. So. I would say I was probably 10 or 11. Yeah, it's a really genuinely scary movie. And yeah. so it came out in 1992. So I definitely didn't see it when it came out because I was two years old. <laughs> uh, but I saw it in high school, as I've seen a lot of the things I talk about on this podcast, um, because it was on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. And it looked... I had never seen anything like that before, and it was just really intriguing to me. And I managed to rent the DVD, and ever since then, it's been one of my favorite movies. I feel like I say that about every movie I talk about on this podcast, <laughs> but I genuinely mean it. <laughs> so what did you think of this movie when you saw it like did you like it did you like what were your thoughts and then what are, what were your thoughts again as an adult watching it um well I definitely my largest fear was that I was going to get caught watching it I think that was like probably scarier than the movie right to be honest um but I remember the music scaring the shit out of me um but I also remember it kind of making me horny though <laughs> yeah i mean in, like some way i was gonna say like this movie is uh pretty erotic yeah definitely clive always i mean he's just such a freak oh absolutely <laughs> yeah and we're definitely gonna talk about that so 1992 written and directed by bernard rose and starring Virginia Madsen as Helen and Tony Todd as 
the eponymous Candyman. And it also has Cassie Lemons, who plays Bernadette in the movie. And Cassie Lemons directed Eve's Bayou, which is another one of my favorite movies. And she also directed the new movie that's coming out, Harriet, about Harriet Tubman. So she's doing well right now. Long overdue. Um, Such an underrepresented and underrated filmmaker. Have you seen Eve's Bayou? Yes, I love. It's so, so good. It's so good. And it's based, like you were saying, it's based on the short story, The Forbidden by Clive Barker, which was originally set in a white British working class neighborhood. Um, so when Bernard Rose bought the rights to the story, he changed it to be set in Chicago. The interesting fact I learned about this movie is that the producers had Bernard Rose meet with the NAACP various times before the filming because they were concerned about depicting the racial themes in this movie. I read that too. Yeah. And apparently the NAACP approved of the film. It's just such a weird thing. Like, here, go before this board that's going to decide if this movie is okay or not, because these people speak for this entire group of people. <laughs> it's, I just found that very bizarre, but also unsurprising that, that right. they would do that. I'm like, you need a community panel and not an organization interested in money. <laughs> yeah, you need a community panel with like a cross section of yeah. <laughs> multiple different kinds of people from different walks of life. <laughs> like, right. not the fucking NAACP, whatever. <laughs> yeah, like how about the people who live at Cabrini Green? <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. I, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, yeah. they don't have like a community organization at cabrini green i'm sure they do um right eddie murphy was also the original choice for Candyman. (laughs) (laughs) oh that kills me it's very funny i can't see it yeah i can see it i mean he so there was conflicting accounts here so eddie murphy was the original choice but they couldn't afford him is one account but then the other account is that he was the original choice but he was too short (laughs) oh interesting okay yeah and he's like five he's five nine and tony todd is six three or something okay so but i don't know how much i buy that because yeah I mean, come on, movie magic. They can make him taller. Exactly. They can make him look as tall as they want. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think they probably just couldn't afford him. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Tony Todd. I'm so glad, though. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Tony Todd, come on. Like, it's so perfect. An iconic role. And he said that his friends advised him against taking the role because he'd be known forever as Candyman. Yeah, he was like, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, he was like, that's fine. And he, he also said that he always wanted his own Phantom of the Opera story. Oh, my God. Which, Perfect. I mean, I never thought of this as a Phantom of the Opera story, but it totally is in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, which makes sense, because I've always been obsessed with that story as well. Oh, my God, I live for that. I li- yeah, right? It's so good. <laughs> 
Uh, I also love this fact that Tony Todd negotiated a bonus of $1,000 every time a bee stung him. Yes. So he walked out with an extra like 23K. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because he was saw that, like memed recently and I was like, is that real? And so I had to look it up and I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, it's 100% real. He was stung 23 yeah. times. <laughs> I love I'm that. surprised that's it. Right. <laughs> Yeah. I love that so much, though. That was a good move. <laughs> oh, of course. Like, maybe we all negotiate in the same way for, yeah. like, on the job. A suffering Hardships. Fate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Philip Glass did the iconic score. Ugh, amazing. It's so good. And a lot of the time on this podcast, we talk about movies that didn't get great reviews when they came out. But this movie received pretty much... like mostly positive reviews when it came out um there were a few people who thought that it was like too gory or and and then there were right and then there's a lot of academic backlash of people feeling like this movie (laughs) is um like for lack of a better term racially insensitive um and it's i mean like we can totally get into that um and then there's been people that feel the opposite way about it that it's very like you know got a lot of deep themes going on and i guess i'm of the mind that it's both definitely (laughs) and that things are usually always both yes and things are rarely like one or the other Mm-hmm. in anything in life the scenes the exterior scenes in cabrini green and the hallway scenes and the bathroom scenes were actually filmed um at, at the actual cabrini green housing projects and the producers actually made a deal with the ruling gang members of cabrini green and to put them in the movie as extras <laughs> yeah (laughs) right (laughs) to ensure the safety of the cast and crew during filming and even with this arrangement uh somebody did put a bullet through the production van on the last day of filming (laughs) (laughs) nobody was in as they should (laughs) as they should i'm like (laughs) yeah i literally laughed out loud when i read that (laughs) (laughs) they're like a sniper got the van on the last day I know they were like fuck this movie (laughs) I mean it's also it's just strange to me I I guess the whole thing like oh we're going to make a deal with these gang members that they can be in the film but I'm wondering if they talk to other residents of Cabrini Green like if they were okay with people being there yeah and who did the negotiating and like what did that look like and how did you know who was a gang member and how did you know who was the ruling gang <laughs> like i just that's what i want to know yeah yeah absolutely yeah exactly who did the negotiating <laughs> like it's just and it was like it had yeah exactly how did they know who these people were like did they talk to people who live there it's just i need Mm -hmm. to know the whole story behind that oh me too i would love to know that the effects crew had a blacksmith make Candyman's hook 
But when they went to pick it up, the blacksmith refused to sell it to them because he heard it was for a Clive Barker movie and he was a devout Christian. And of course, we know Clive Barker is a fucking freak (laughs) and made a very uh, anti-Christian movie called Hellraiser. So that was also very funny to me. Oh, yeah. I love that. And I just, it made me so happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm like, for all the parts of this movie that um, don't necessarily bring me joy, that bit of trivia made me feel so good. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that and them shooting the van. Yes. <laughs> killed me. It was the best. Uh, so funny. Uh, director, oh, the Bernard Rose also had Virginia Madsen and Tony Todd take ballroom classes together. So ballroom dancing oh, classes. I didn't read that. Okay. Yeah, so that they would have more of a romantic connection when playing their characters. Oh wow! Oh my God, I love Tony Todd so much. I would love to take a ballroom class. I him. love Tony Todd too. I'm bi for Tony Todd. Okay. Oh, me too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's very attractive. Hmm. Uh, viewers, I mean, Candyman is a is one of oh, the horror genre's most terrifying villains. But Rose said that the idea was that he was always kind of a romantic figure, and again, romantic in the sort of Edgar Allan Poe sense. It's the romance of death. He's a ghost, and he's also the resurrection of something that is kind of unspoken or unspeakable in American history. And mm. I think there's also something very seductive and very sweet and very romantic about him, and that's what makes him interesting, in the same way there is about Dracula. In the end, the boogeyman is someone you want to surrender to. You're not just afraid. There's a certain kind of joy in his seduction. And <laughs> that definitely comes through in the movie. Oh, for sure. I mean, I always thought I was just like a horny little freak, but then like reading that that, that was intentional. Um, yeah, I was just picking up on it as right. the way we were supposed to. Exactly. Yeah. So now that we've talked about the history of the production, let's get into talking about the plot of Candyman. Yeah. So this movie opens on a aerial view of Chicago. With, oh, so beautiful it's so good and also i read that this was very new at the time they were using mm-hmm. something called a sky cam yeah which now you would use a drone but i guess then it was the <laughs> sky cam and this was like brand new and was one of the first movies to use it and there's it opens with this ominous organ music philip glass's Ugh. score with the choral chanting so perfect so perfect and you can also definitely see jordan peele being influenced from this here, mm, mm-hmm. which he talk he he talks about this movie influencing him a, him a lot, and because this opening is very uh, very much like the opening of Us, with that yeah. crazy chorus music setting up everything, and we see a swarm of bees and Candyman voiceover, and one of the lines he says is, "With my hook for a hand, I'll split you from your grind to your gullet." I came for you. <laughs> so we immediately get like all this bee symbolism. And what do you, you've seen this movie a few times. And oh, what yeah. do you think the bees are about here? Like, what is the symbolism of the bees? How do you read that? 
Mm-mm. You know, I guess I haven't thought about symbolically what those mean before this moment, but uh, racism, I guess, mm. it can feel like a whole hive is attacking you, <laughs> or that yeah. um, you can be covered in, um, covered in, or like surrounded by people who, with the possibility to hurt you, and but they may or may not do it. And when I th- oh, I read so much about them using um, you know baby bees or like younger bees because they're less likely to sting or like the stingers are less likely to have as much impact. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe the bees are the racists. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's actually something I had not thought of because I've been so influenced by the literature around this movie and. Mm. A lot of the literature says that the bees are like a symbol of the city as a hive and, mm. uh, you know, worker bees, drones kind of just like going about their lives without questioning anything, like without questioning uh, these yeah. racist power structures and the also the structure of the housing projects, like being like a hive. So th- I think I mean, like, again, both things work completely like what you're saying is really profound of like living kind of on edge and fear of being stung at any moment. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, this movie is just so like, this is one of the movies that I've had the most notes for ever on this podcast because this, it's so just rich. Like, Every single scene of this movie is absolutely loaded with symbolism. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm thinking, um, I'm like, well, the next time I <laughs> get, get a job, I'm going to negotiate uh, a fee for every microaggression. Yes. <laughs> like a fee for every bee sting. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that like it would never happen, but. It would never happen, but it absolutely idea. should. Yeah. That is a great idea. I mean, Tony Todd, that's a, that is iconic. (laughs) It really is. We'll never get over that. Uh, We open with this voiceover about an urban legend about Candyman. And we see this typical white suburban teenage couple. They're about to transgress as they normally do in these stories and have sex. And the the woman in the couple, the girl in the couple tells the story about Candyman whose right hand was sawed off and he had a hook jammed in the bloody stump. And if you look in the mirror and say Candyman five times and turn out the lights, he'll appear and he'll gut you. And so, of course, they do it. <laughs> and, and the girl dies horribly and the, the boy escapes, but his hair is turned completely white. And there is immediately a connection between white sexuality and the brutalization of a black person historically and it's connected in this scene immediately um so that we're sort of seeing the candy man story through this white gaze like right away mm-hmm. and there is also right away the mirror symbolism which is that what i read and what i've read in the literature around this is like the history that is in all of us and looking in the mirror and back at the past and seeing that reflected in you and how none of us can really escape that. Hmm. 
because I've always wondered what it is about mirrors in this movie. I mean, a lot of the time we talk about mirror symbolism in relation to uh, speaking to the vanity of women. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's functioning a bit differently here. And it happens. I mean, mirrors come up throughout this movie over and over, like when they find that behind the mirror in the apartments, you can get into the apartment next door. Like mirrors are definitely a site of self-discovery. Yeah, I haven't thought about the symbolism, um, you know, having to do with your past, but I had thought um, the obvious comparison with like blood, the Bloody Mary playing five times in a mirror um, and how that lore was there. And then also the the real murder that happened in Chicago where someone entered the apartment through the other bathroom mirror. Yes, because that's actually happened. Yeah, yeah. And so I I had left it at that. I hadn't thought, I hadn't gone any further past that. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, we can, uh, I can read so many things into all of the little symbols that are in this movie. And the next scene, we see Virginia Madsen Hel- playing Helen. She is smoking a cigarette while the- there's so many cigarettes in this movie. <laughs> while <laughs> this girl is t- this is telling her the story of these teens, and we say that they're in a college building. And this is when we learn that Virginia Madsen, Helen, and Cassie Lemon, Bernadette, are doing a thesis together on urban legends at the University of Chicago. And Madsen's husband, Helen's husband, fucking Trevor, who I hate, (laughs) is also a lecturer at the university. And he's also talking about urban legends. And he, we also get the setup that he's like maybe having a dalliance with uh, one of his young students named Stacy, who's also a blonde white woman. Uh, and is he, she's all suspicious about it. Helen's all suspicious about it. And she's also pissed because he's lecturing on urban legends and she's still working on her thesis. How dare he? Um, he's so fucking gross. I hate him. I fucking hate Trevor. Like, I know. Burning hatred (laughs) in this movie um i even more so on this last rewatch and there's also the the there is something being set up here too right in the beginning of like the white ivory tower of the intellectual sphere Mm -hmm. and it's i see it as being very critiqued in this in these moments like these people kind of they're fake right like yeah helen and her husband supposedly have this great working relationship but they're not even honest with each other and he'll throw her under the bus to give a lecture to his class like it's they they see themselves as so like above the fray and yet they're these kind of fake people who have really no loyalty to each other and that will come up again when trevor totally abandons helen Oh my god. And you know who keeps it the realest? Stacy, because that she's so scared of Helen, it kills me. Oh yeah. <laughs> Stacy cracks me up. It really like th- thrills me. Oh, it's so <laughs> funny. I see her just like cower and cry. It's <laughs> and very Helen funny. Around. And 
in the next scene, Helen is transcribing her urban legend interviews when a black woman who is one of the school janitors, her name is Henriette, and oh, is it Henriette or Henrietta? I think Henrietta. And she comes in and begins cleaning up around Helen. And she hears the tape of the interviewee talking about Candyman and asks Helen if she's doing a study on him. And Helen says she is. And that, and Henrietta says that her friend told her that Candyman lives at Cabrini Green and that everyone is scared of him. And he supposedly killed a woman named Ruthie Jean. And Helen asks to talk to this friend. And she's like right outside, also one of the janit, another janitor. And calls her in to the classroom. And her name is Kitty. And Kitty explains that this woman named Ruthie Jean at the Cabrini Green Housing Projects heard banging on the walls like someone was trying to get into her apartment. And the police didn't believe her. And when they got there, she was dead. And she was killed with a hook. And people believe Candyman kills her. So a bit about Cabrini Green. Um, Cabrini Green is an infamous housing project in Chicago that was established in 1955 and it's since been torn down and no longer exists and it's was notoriously notoriously neglected by the government and crime ridden and people see it really as a symbol of Chicago's stark segregation because it literally was divided from the white part of town by a highway and we see that again again in the movie like they have to go over the highway specifically to go to cabrini green and a lot is made of the city structure of chicago which i full disclosure i've never been to chicago yeah well you know i grew up south of chicago and um that was part of what made this movie so scary for me is because I was like, if Candyman is real, he is not that far from me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I also grew up in a community uh, because it's like a smaller rural town. They're like terrified of Chicago, terrified of the black folks in Chicago, terrified of the projects. Um, and there was definitely a lot of pathologizing of black folks in my community. And so I think all of that contributed to um, a lot of the feelings that came up for me when watching this film and that still come up for me when I watch it. Yeah, definitely. Um, It's, I mean, Chicago is so pathologized in American media. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about fucking, I'm not even going to say his name, but you know who talking about (laughs) <laughs> the the death rate and the murders in Chicago, like people yeah. think of it as like the bastion of criminal activity. And it, I was thinking about that a lot, like just the historical trauma of Chicago as a city in general, watching this movie. Mm-hmm. So Henrietta and Kitty are skeptical of Helen. Well, Kitty more so. She's like giving Henrietta these side eye looks and <laughs> right. And to me, like they they it shows that they share this connection that Helen is on the outside of. Yes. And Helen senses this and she senses that they're withholding information. And instead of thinking, okay, like maybe this isn't my place, she that further pushes her to want 
to know more about this. Yes. And you really, you really have to be an entitled white woman to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that, yeah. That is like the core of this movie. Yes. About an entitled white woman. Mm-hmm. Helen does some research on the Cabrini Green murders and she finds that Ruthie Jean was indeed killed with a hook. And I was so disturbed during this scene because she's like smiling as she's finding out this information and it's very voyeuristic. And it's confirmed in the next scene because she takes this information to Bernadette, who says that this is sick. This is not one of her fantasies and that this woman actually died. And Bernadette says she won't even drive past Cabrini Green because it's so dangerous. So we immediately get the difference between Bernadette and Helen. Like Helen is seeing this as an opportunity to really advance her own agenda. And Bernadette sees this in a different light. She sees everybody. She sees this as a real problem which it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it, it sets so it, it does a really good job of setting up the difference in that way between Bernadette and Helen, but also between Bernadette and like the black folks that they are going to talk to um, for this study. Mm. Because it's like Bernadette has a choice to not drive by this place um, where the other black folks are living. Um and it's just it's just like a really interesting dynamic to me um as a black person who spent way too much time in higher education uh just how we can per uh perpetrate or like uh perpetuate what the fuck word am i looking for how we can commit some of the same uh the same crimes as these white folks do when it comes to classism or this like ivory tower or treating people as subjects to study right and of course it's not the same thing as when a white person does it because it it can't be the same thing because the person isn't white however you know a lot of the same issues and the same kind of just wrong (laughs) the wrong approaches uh you know they happen again and again yeah and actually i mean i think cassie lemon was also chosen I mean, I I didn't read anything about this, but I'm going to assume from the visual and thematic cues of this movie that Cassie Lemon was specifically chosen for this role because she is a light skinned black woman. And it, it she sort of. And she in, in, in the film, she plays like a very like you were saying, like she's part of this world and she also can like sort of step between worlds but like not in any comfortable way like it's a very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable position that she's in yeah and right definitely yeah i didn't read anything about like her being chosen um based on like being a light-skinned black woman but i did read something about uh them choosing to have that role uh be played by a black person because of the film being set in chicago right yeah yeah because it was originally supposed to be two white women yes um it was supposed to be virginia madsen was supposed to be bernadette and Mm -hmm. um bernard rose's wife was supposed to be helen 
but Bernard Rose's wife, I forget her name, um, something pig, Alexandra pig or something. Yeah. She got pregnant. So then the role was given to Virginia Madsen. Um, and I think that the choices they made here of having Bernadette be a black woman were made the movie that much richer. Um, yes. And I'm very glad it wasn't two white women. Yeah. That would have Because it was already, yeah. like, uncomfortable and gross enough. Yes. <laughs> with, like, the way she questions folks and the way, the way that Helen questions folks, the way that she barges into people's spaces, the way that she pushes people for information. And it's, like, part of me respects that because I'm not like that. And I'm like, oh, I could really stand to, like, have a little more gumption or, like, a little more confidence in like how I ask for things, but I don't ever want to be like that. And I don't ever want to be <laughs> thoughtless or rude or, you know, taking advantage of my position in something. Um, but had it been two white women from the U of I going out there, it just would have been disgusting. And I think it would have been like unbelievable because I'm sure that Bernadette, the idea is that Bernadette kind of softens Helen for people and that like yeah helen announces that they're not cops and i think it's funny that helen keeps saying that like we're not cops we're not here to hurt you and i'm like do you know who you're talking to (laughs) right also why would anybody believe you like why would anyone believe you good right and you look like well you look like a cop and it's (laughs) i mean yeah and also if bernadette were played by a white woman she would just read as like a really racist white woman who's afraid of these folks at Cabrini yeah. Green. And yeah. that would kind of, I mean, it would just make it a different movie. Definitely. Um, so Helen also tells Bernadette that she found out that her building was originally built as a housing project. And Bernadette is shocked. And this really speaks to the gentrification Oof, that this movie yeah. explores. Like, Helen lives in this rich high-rise that was originally a housing project, and the building was barely renovated. (laughs) Like, a lot of the features are still in place there, and she's supposedly paying, like, thousands of dollars for this apartment. And it's all a lie. It's all a facade. And, And it's all built on the suffering of people. And... It's also interesting to me that this film is set in a specific place. Like, it's specifically Chicago and it's specifically Cabrini Green. Whereas a lot of horror movies from this era are set in, like, generic suburban sprawl. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, the, the idea is that anybody can put themselves in that position in the movie. But of course, the people that can put themselves in that position are white people who live in suburbia, because that's what all the movies are about. And the white suburban family is always seen as like, oh, that is the everyman. Like anybody can project themselves onto that. But like, as we know, that's, of course, not the case. And this movie is is very it's very specifically about a specific experience um and i find that very fascinating because the movie at its core like has to be about the the gentrification of chicago yeah definitely 
So she, Helen shows Bernadette that you can get into the apartment next door by taking the mirror off the bathroom wall. There's like a hole behind the mirror and you could crawl in and go to the next apartment. And she believes that the layout of her apartment is probably identical to the layout of the apartments at Cabrini Green. And so she thinks that this is how Ruthie Jean was killed in her apartment. And this was not made up, like we were saying, like while researching the film, we both found that uh, Bernard Rose learned that a series of murders had been committed in Chicago this way. So, I mean, then there's also the element of using like real life horror and not knowing what is real and what is fiction in this movie. Like, it's also unclear if if the Candyman myth is a real urban legend or not. It's it's not, but the way that it's played in the movie, it seems like it could be. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Helen does not see this for the omen that it is. Uh, <laughs> like the oh, horror, Helen. Right. The horrors of Cabrini Green are about to erupt into her own bourgeois life, which is like literally symbolized by her apartment being the same layout as Cabrini Green. And she doesn't see that at all. <laughs> like the absolute hubris and disrespect for historical trauma is very realistic and evident in her character. Yeah, definitely. Then, of course, even more, like, hubris happening because they recite Candyman, her and Bernadette recite Candyman into the mirror, but Bernadette doesn't finish. <laughs> that part, okay. <laughs> yeah. And Helen finishes the chant, and which is also positioning them as different people. Like, Helen has obviously no real fear of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trevor exactly. scares Helen in bed like a giant dick <laughs> in one scene. I guess just showing that Trevor sucks. I feel like a lot of... Anytime we see Trevor in this movie, it's just like... By the way, just in case you forgot, Trevor sucks. Yes. Helen and Bernadette go to Cabrini Green. Bernadette says that they look like they're just like cops. And Helen says, I told you to dress conservative. It's just so funny to me that like, this is what is read as neutral to Helen. Like this is a neutral way to dress. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's yeah, very. So please wear that, that crosshatched blazer, Helen, with the huge coat. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, she is so in her own bubble that oh, yeah. she sees this as, like, professional and neutral. Like, yeah, very telling. They did a really, really good job of setting up Helen to be this just ignorant white woman researcher. I mean, she's like, I mean, so it, ignorant in that there's just all these things she doesn't know. Like, she's clearly very intelligent and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But just like bulldozes her way into all these things. Yes. Yeah. And she, I mean, it's like I was also reading that because, you know, we've both seen the movie Horror Noir and love it. And, the book that horror noir is based on the author of that book says that there are black films black horror films and then there are horror films with black people in it 
and she sees Candyman as a horror film with black people in it, not a black horror film. And also through my reading, I was finding that, of course, not everybody agrees with that. And, you know, I just just think it's an interesting point to throw out there. I mean, Helen, on the one hand, you could say that a lot of the movie is seen from her perspective. And so in that way, it, it sympathizes with her. On the other hand, she is so realistically portrayed as like a very typical ignorant white woman in academia that, you know, I, I don't I'm not sure how much I actually sympathize with her because I see her as like an infiltrator and, you know, someone that I am not quote unquote rooting for in the movie. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was young, I was scared for her Mm. and sympathized with her and felt fear for her and sorry for her. And as a grown up watching this movie, I hate her. I think she's the worst. And I think that they do portray her exactly as someone, how someone would, someone like her would go into that situation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because it's like, I'm sure that the people I grew up with um, and the white adults around me uh, could watch this currently and and feel sympathy for Helen. Um, and it's just it's just this other way that um, you know a piece of art speaks very differently to to different people. And so I think as a child, I might have thought it was a horror movie with black people in it, but as an adult, I'm more inclined to think it's a black horror movie. Mm. Um, and to be very glad when Helen is you know burned up (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah uh so helen and bernadette are you know like we said they're on their way to cabrini green and bernadette is really like questioning this and doesn't feel 100 percent great about this and helen is really brazen really condescending to bernadette she is smashing herself into worlds that she doesn't understand and has no business being in. And she is bullying Bernadette into going forward with this mission. Um, and just basically gaslighting her also. Like, Bernadette clearly understands that this is, like, not a great idea. And yeah. Helen is uh, being abusive, honestly. Like, she's like, okay, so we'll just go back and we'll write a typical paper just like everyone else. And I was like, shut the fuck up, Helen. (laughs) They arrive at Cabrini Green and their presence is immediately noticed by a group of young black men hanging outside who start, you know, following them when they get out of the car and telling them, like, not to go in. And they say that they look like cops and they also yell and announce to the other people in the building that the cops are there and there is graffiti everywhere like we see that this is a very neglected community um helen is taking photos which also speaks to this white gaze of the photographer's Mm -hmm. camera and which is of course very historically relevant i mean just like the colonial implications of that are very heavy yeah and they're also they're startled by a woman and her dog and later we will find out that that woman is Anne marie so 
They find Ruthie Jean's old apartment. Bernadette wants to leave it alone. She doesn't want to go in. But of course, Helen wants to go in and crawls through <laughs> to the other apartment using Ruthie's bathroom mirror. And Helen finds the Candyman graffiti. And she crawls through this other hole in the wall and comes out. And you see that there's this giant painting of Candyman. And his face is contorted and his mouth is wide open. And his mouth is the hole in the wall. And there are, again, like, sexual connotations here. Um, And she also finds candy around this altar with razor blades in it which is another urban legend so kind of like a nod to urban legend history and i was also reading that perhaps the candy is an allusion to the sugar trade and Hmm. slavery in the west indies oh okay which interesting maybe but yeah um it's just like so much going on (laughs) And this is also when I started to notice really like the design of the Candyman lair, uh, which was designed by cinematographer Anthony B. Richmond. And he said that he designed the lair to be this architectural gothic. So in the literature I was reading, this movie gets referred to again and again as a gothic film, which makes a lot of sense there are these really gothic themes of like the grotesque and and being in awe of the grotesque and awe and horror and eroticism and horror which is very um part of gothic literature and also the lair is super goth (laughs) like yeah just it very um very obviously like in an like urban but also like like taking place like in a city but also very like romantic and high drama (laughs) so bernadette is anxiously smoking a cigarette in the bathroom when helen pops out of the mirror hole and says she needs more film but bernadette is like fuck no (laughs) like we're leaving (laughs) And the woman with the dog, again, startles them and tells them that they don't belong there. And they go to this uh, this woman's apartment, Anne-Marie, and she questions their study. And she apologizes to them for questioning them. And I was like, don't apologize, Anne-Marie. <laughs> like, you are absolutely right to feel this way. But, I mean, she and she says that, you know, the other white people who come around aren't trustworthy and i was like helen is also not trustworthy right (laughs) and i think that that is meant to be sort of like a nod to how helen isn't actually trustworthy um Anne marie says that she heard ruthie dying next door and she called 911 but no one came and that she's scared for her life and her child's life because she has a baby on a daily basis because of Candyman also interesting to me and i don't know how you interpret this but the fact that helen is so bent on thinking that the residents here are talking about a fucking legend like why does she not think Candyman could be a real person like she just assumes that they're talking about an urban legend yeah she just like doesn't believe them from jump 
Exactly. It's like she comes into this space thinking that um, her intelligence is such that, of course, this thing isn't real. And it's like so unfortunate to once again, per usual, see a white person in her space to to study people and they and not believe them ever and just want access to these stories right and helen okay the next scene is very funny to me because we meet purcell who is a gay fat british man (laughs) i mean i don't know if he's gay but he reads that way to me oh yeah (laughs) with his long gray hair And Helen, Bernadette, and Trevor are all having dinner with him. And he is, I'm assuming, Helen and Bernadette's thesis advisor. um, Because he's asking about their thesis, asking when they're going to turn it in. And Helen is so funny. I mean, this really also, like, speaks a lot to how white women will throw people of color under the bus to, like, one-up a white man. Like... She is saying, oh, I'm going to bury you with my findings. <laughs> like, that's all she cares about is oh, yeah. achieving this place in academia right beside her white male counterparts. And I have to laugh because Purcell laughs in her face and he says he wrote about a candy man 10 years ago. <laughs> and Helen is all pissed. And this is when we get... The Candyman legend, which I'll just summarize really quickly. So Purcell says the Candyman legend appeared in 1890. Uh, He was the son of an ex-slave. His name was Daniel Robitaille. And his father had gotten wealthy for making a device that mass produced shoes after the Civil War. Daniel uh, had grown up in polite society. He was an artist and was sought after for portraiture. He was commissioned by a wealthy white landowner to paint his daughter's portrait. They fell in love and she became pregnant. The father paid a pack of hooligans, thugs, and chased Candyman to Cabrini Green, where they sawed off his hand with a rusty blade. They smashed a bunch of beehives that were nearby and smeared honey all over Candyman's naked body and he was stung to death by bees. They then burned his body on a pyre and scattered his ashes over Cabrini Green. So... A lot to unpack here. Um, this is a horrible story. And it is also very historically relevant because, like he said, uh, like Purcell says, this took this came about in about 1890, and between the years 1882 and 1930. 2,805 black men, women, and children were victims of mob murders in the U.S. So Daniel Robitaille was murdered during the, the what would have been the actual peak years, which was 1890 to 1893, also called the bloody 90s. And these mass mob murders and lynchings were often actually as brutal as they are portrayed in the Candyman legend. So horror typically exaggerates everyday violence, but this is very unique because this is very, it's drawn from actual history, even though it's made up. Because I don't think you can even exaggerate the violence that has been brought upon Black folks in this country. You don't have to. 
Like, yeah, it's it's just as fucking bad as it is yeah, in this movie. Definitely. Um, and I mean, just the the actual this being rooted in actual history brings it into the realm of like outside of the fantastical like it becomes this very everyday horror that lurks like just beneath the surface in all of our interactions as americans yeah there's also this idea of hauntings as diaspora um because robotized body Candyman's body was dismembered and scattered so it's like a corporeal diaspora like his it, you know he, he him being a person of the diaspora and then having his physical form take that literally um and there's also when helen is taking this telling the story uh I don't know if you noticed, but the light on her eyes is always very weird and hallucinatory and hypnotic. Yeah, definitely. And apparently she was hypnotized during some of these scenes. Yeah, I read that. I had no, I did not know that until like today. Yeah, I didn't know that either. And there's also the sounds of Daniel robotized torture playing over her face that is shot in almost a romantic way and it really underscores like the repulsion and eroticism with black sexuality in the white erotic imagination like she's excited and horrified by this story at once yeah um yeah. her whole relationship with with candy man is that of <laughs> horror and eroticism Yes. And Helen goes back to Anne-Marie's apartment and meets Jake, who is a young boy. And she asks Jake about Ruthie Jean. I was like, leave this kid alone. (laughs) Why are we talking to this kid about a horrific murder? Right. So inappropriate. And he says that he can't say anything because Candyman will get him. And again, like Helen just assumes Candyman is not real. Like yeah. that he's talking about a legend. Like he's naive when he's actually talking about, as we know, he's talking about a real person. Um, she is trying to best Trevor and Purcell at the expense of the safety of the black people around her in this community. Um, because forcing jake to talk about this is just really unconscionable like but again she's she thinks he's making it up um jake takes helen to an outside bathroom um and says that this is where Candyman is he says that a mentally impaired young boy was killed in this bathroom while his mother shopped across the street and that Candyman cut the boy's penis off, which also harkens back to the history of castration and mob murders of black men. There are the other thing I was thinking about in this moment was like the stories within stories in this movie. And 
there are like urban legends within urban legends, like Jake telling the story. We're unsure if this is a real story or not. Um, just like the play between fact and fiction in this movie. So Helen goes to the bathroom to take photos. There is a toilet swarming with bees. What? Uh, when I first saw this movie, I was like, why are there bees in the toilet? <laughs> and I don't know if you read anything about the bees in this movie, but like, apparently they they put a queen bee in the toilet and then the the bees just like automatically swarmed to the queen bee. And then afterwards, they sucked them out with a gentle bee vacuum. <laughs> yeah. Leave the bees alone. <laughs> I know, right? I had never thought about these bees being real bees until I read all of that. I think I thought that they were fake. I don't know Me how too. I thought they were pulling that off, but right, same. <laughs> but uh, I was like, kind of oh. surprised to learn that they were real bees. Yeah, me too. Especially at the the quantity <laughs> that they have in this movie. There's so many. This is why the bees are dying. Because people want to use them for fucking movies. <laughs> uh, that bathroom. So that, scary. That bathroom is horrible. <laughs> There's like shit everywhere. Yeah, like written sweets written in the wall. <laughs> sweets shit. for the sweet. sweet. Yeah, which is a line from Hamlet. Yes. Um, And there's also like a an equation... There's like, which we've talked about when we did the Pink Flamingos episode, um, of like the abject, like, um, and equating actual shit with violence and historical violence. Um, there's a lot of like actual excrement in this movie, <laughs> like yes. excrement symbolism. Um, and we kind of see it. And, and bathrooms in general, which follow Helen around the entire movie. Um, very, it's very Freudian. So the real Candyman shows up, who is a gang leader, and he has a hook. And he says to Helen, or, well, Helen is first... Him and his like. Excuse me, I'll just get right out of your way. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, I'll get right out of your way. And then when she sees like his goons are gathering and that you know she's in trouble, uh, she's like, I'm not a cop. I'm from the university, and like shows him a fucking card, like her (laughs) business card. And I mean, this just kind of shows like the absolute disconnect that Helen has. Um. And he says, I hear you're looking for Candyman, bitch, and slams a hook into her head. So Helen, like we said, Helen assumed the inhabitants of Cabrini Green were like these naive, folksy people and that they thought that the legend of Candyman was real. But he's a fucking real person and a real threat. And Helen thought that she was this like white savior, but really she doesn't understand anything happening at all in this community. And that this moment really underscores that. Um, 
I also wanted to ask if you think that the Candyman murders, I think it's supposed to be ambiguous, but do you think that the Candyman murders of Ruthie Jean and the boy in the bathroom, do you think that they were done by the real Candyman or by the ghost Candyman? Hmm. You know, I think when I was younger, I definitely thought it was ghost Candyman, Mm. but I'm not so sure now. I'm not so sure. Ruthie Jean seems like that was the real candy of the ghost candy man. Mm. And it seems like that bathroom might just be part of the real candy man's territory. I don't know. Well, cause uh, like one of the big criticisms I've heard about this movie is why would candy man be terrorizing the black people around him in Cabrini green when his real, um, like, ghostly revenge would be towards the white people who killed him and i uh, that has always been to me like a really good point and something that i don't buy about the movie but then on this rewatch i was like oh i think that the the real candy man is the one who's killing these people um yeah because that to me makes more sense like but you know, I mean, I think I guess you could read it multiple ways. Yeah, I mean, it does make a lot of sense that the real Candyman would be doing that. Um, but you know, Ghost Candyman, like he he was in love with white women. Mm. Like he, I feel like certainly there's this element of like, why would he, you know, do this to people in his own community and in his own area or his own like gothic kingdom, but at the end of the day it's like ghost Candyman is a murderer and even if it's like the outcome of like severe severe trauma and murder that he himself you know went through I'm like i think it's possible that he certainly his terror and his terrorizing of cabrini green um is something even if he didn't actually you know follow through with any of these specific murders like he's still a terror Right. And he's acting out his historical trauma and mm-hmm. terror on mm-hmm. modern day black residents. Yeah. He's a terror and he's in love with white women. Right. Yeah. That's deep. Um, a police officer, uh, I think his name is Detective Lintel. Um, <laughs> I forget. And he explains to Helen, because Helen is now at the police station, um, because she's picking her assailant out of a lineup. Yeah. Which is also very significant, because it's like a group of black men who all look completely different from each other. And they're just stepping forward and saying, I heard you're looking for Candyman, bitch. And so that Helen can identify them, but like none of them look the same, which speaks a lot to the actual justice system in this country mm-hmm. um the a police officer detective lintel explains to helen that they've wanted to nail this guy for a while and now they can because of her assault so it took a white woman getting assaulted for them to do anything about it um yeah in which helen acknowledges later as well um Jake is at the police station too, and he's pissed off at Helen for lying about not getting the police involved. And Helen is naive and tells Jake that everything will be good now because Candyman is in jail. 
she trusts the system so much. Yeah. Like, who's to say that he's actually even going to get charged? Like, <sighs> she doesn't know anything yet. Um, Helen and Bernadette meet up, and Helen expresses that she's frustrated that two people were brutally murdered, and it took her getting assaulted for them to do anything. So she does have, like, a little bit of self-awareness, um, mar- marginal self-awareness. Um, Bernadette says at least he was caught. And, you know, kind of showing that to to Bernadette, what she cares the most about is, like, that, that the other people are safe now. Um, and she also... He says that there are publishers interested in the paper now, and Helen, all she cares about is that they're going to get yeah. published. <laughs> and that's what she's taken away from this whole thing. <laughs> now is some of the best scenes of the movie. Um, Helen uh, is alone, right? <laughs> when we hear that first Helen. Yes. Helen. I'll she, never forget that. So good. We meet Helen's alone in a parking garage and the real Candyman appears. And it's Tony Todd in an amazing black fur coat, <laughs> floor length. <laughs> and he says, you were not content with the stories, so I was obliged to come. Be my victim. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Okay, number one, hot. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know, like, number two, this is what happens when you stick your nose into shit you have no business in. Correct. And I guess I was always sort of like, what does he mean by this? Like, how do you interpret Candyman's monologues? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. It's like he's so twisted from <laughs> all of these years. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. She just like stirred something. I mean, I guess we find out in later movies like why exactly she has stirred up these things in him. But <sighs> I don't know. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense to me now, knowing that she was hypnotized at times. Right. Yeah, she looks hypnotized. And she looks hypnotized. Yeah. Um, and she's like, "I'm sorry, I have to be going now," which is also very funny because she's still trying to keep up her like, um, white polite society act. <laughs> He's a fucking. Yes, I'll be get right out of your way. Right. He's a fucking ghost with a hook for a hand, like. <laughs> And she's like, I have to be going now. And which is echoes the the earlier scene with her getting with her in the bathroom with the gang leader Candyman. Yeah. Um It's like, girl, you are in danger. Yes. Okay. <laughs> You're in actual danger. And this okay, so the next scene is really hard for me to watch. I think this is like maybe the first time I haven't skipped it in a while on this rewatch. Um, because we cut to Helen disoriented in Anne Marie's apartment. It's because Vanessa Williams, who another Vanessa Williams, not 
not yeah not Vanessa Williams uh playing Anne Marie is so effective in this oh, scene. I know. Like it is horrifying. It's really horrifying and cuz Helen wakes up she's covered in blood. The she's in Anne Marie's apartment. The dog, Anne Marie's dog has been decapitated. That's where all the blood is coming from and Anne Marie is screaming and crying in grief because she doesn't know where her baby is. And she, like she is so her acting is just like gut-wrenching in this scene. Um it's pure also, grief. Why would you pick up that meat cleaver off the floor? Oh, why would you pick up pick it up from by the dog's head? Like I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. She attacks Helen because she thinks Helen murdered her baby, and uh, the police arrive, and Helen is like holding a fucking meat cleaver. <laughs> so it looks like she's done this, and they arrest her. And there is a very interesting scene where Helen is told she's she's being stripped by a woman police officer and she's crying. Oh, that scene. Yeah. As she's like taking the bloody clothes off and she is kind of using her white woman tears to gain mm-hmm. sympathy. But there is <laughs> it does none. not work. It does not work. <laughs> And I was kind of like laughing a little bit at the scene because me too. I think when I was younger, I maybe read it as like, "Oh my god, this is so traumatic." So yes. of course she's crying, but now I read it a very different way. Of like she's weaponizing her tears, and it's not working this time. Yes, yeah, same. Same. Um, I was cracking up. <laughs> she's like, I'm "Can I like, please just take a shower?" And it's like, "I'm like, girl, they think you murdered a dog and a baby. Like, no one cares about your feelings right now." Exactly. No one cares if you can take a shower. <laughs> and like the fact that you're a white woman is, it, had you been anyone else, you might not have even made it out of that apartment. The cops might have just killed you on sight. Like, exactly. So <laughs> you're lucky to be alive. <laughs> yeah. And. She talks to the detective, the uh, the guy from before, and he now has no sympathy for her. And he tells her she's under arrest. And he also says that Amory returned to her apartment to find her dog with the head cut with its head cut off. And Helen attacked her with a meat cleaver. And they ask where the baby is, and she says she doesn't know. Um, she calls Trevor, who doesn't answer. <laughs> Because we assume he's off fucking Stacy. <laughs> yes. Hilarious. Um, Helen has a vision of baby Anthony in Candyman's lair. So we know that the baby is alive. Fucking Trevor eventually comes to get her. And they have to leave through a swarm of reporters. So this is very, like, kind of just desserts. Because... Helen wanted this like fame and notoriety and now she yeah. has it. <laughs> yeah. And it's just very uh like twisted and it it's what she deserves honestly. Um Helen explains to Trevor and her lawyer that she blacked out and has no idea what happened and then, of course, she questions Trevor as to his whereabouts last night. 
Trevor leaves to go pick something up from the university, which I don't know. I mean, it just shows like how much Trevor does not give a fuck about her. Right. <laughs> like she is on, she's going to be arrested. She's going to be charged with murder. And he's like, I just have to go pick some stuff up from the university. He's probably fucking Stacy again. Definitely. <laughs> This is when Helen looks at some slides of Cabrini Green and she sees Candyman in the mirror of one of the photos and Candyman appears to her again and says, believe in me, be my victim. I want to be Candyman's victim. Yeah, (laughs) so hot. Yeah. (laughs) Kill me with your hook. Um. <laughs> and he also says that he has the child and he explains that it's time for her to be immortal and a sc- become a scary tale just like him. Um and no this is my the worst death in the movie to me, Bernadette. She oh, yes, it's heartbreaking. She shows up to bring flowers to Helen and Candyman kills her. And Trevor comes home and it looks like Helen has killed Bernadette, of course, because she's covered in blood and holding a knife. Helen is arrested now for Bernadette's murder. And she hears Candyman's voice in her head asking her why she wants to live when it's so much better to be a legend. (sighs) That was interesting to me. As someone who struggles with suicidal ideation mm-hmm. like immortality and legend and is it better to be alive like he says it's so much better i forget exactly what he says but he says it's so much better to not have to be than to not have to exist but to exist only in whispers and i felt that i felt that <laughs> yeah like I mean, also the like, trauma. I'm a rumor. <laughs> As a rumor, yeah. I mean, like, also the trauma of his life and yeah. how he now gets to exist as, like, the literal, or, or not even literal, but like the a ghostly embodiment of the, the, the thirst for revenge and also the trauma behind that is just some really deep shit that this movie is exploring helen gets taken to a psych unit strapped to a table and candy man appears to her again and he says what do the good know except what the bad teach them with their excesses <sighs> which again candy man's monologues blow my mind <laughs> like yeah i you could take an entire class about this movie and you could just focus on Candyman's like monologues because they're so layered and I don't even really understand half of them. Uh, And he also says, allow me just one kiss. So it's also like, I mean, it becomes clearer later, but at this point in the movie, we're kind of like, is Candyman in love with Helen? Is he trying to torture her because she is like the the reincarnation of this white woman that he fell in love with who 
suffered no consequences for their love. Um, like, is this revenge on her? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's all kind of ambiguous. And Helen meets Dr. Burke, another man that I hate in this movie. Uh, <laughs> right. Who explains that she's actually been there for a month and has been charged with first degree murder. This is such a nightmare. it is i mean as somebody who struggles with mental health like to just the 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 nightmare of just like being committed and like left there and like not knowing time is passing and like having nobody advocating for you um is i mean and it also like i'm just kind of thinking about this now it also speaks to some of the like trauma and oppression that like women do that women experience and as a white woman like Helen is this oppressor and she's also now experiencing like the height of the sexist and misogynist oppression that she would experience and um it's and it's very yeah, I mean, I don't know where I'm going with that, but I'm just sort of thinking about how this movie would be very different if it was about a man. And I think that the remake is about a man. So, um, because the remake is they just wrapped shooting, Jordan Peele just wrapped shooting the reboot that he's making in September. And I think that the main character is supposed to be a man. So, okay. Well, but it's but the main yeah, but I think it's focused around a young black man. So I'm interested to see what they do with that. I think the story is going to be really different than this one. Um, Helen says that she can prove Candyman is the killer, and she tries to call him in the mirror. And there's like a fake out moment where you think Candyman's not going to appear, but he does appear and he guts Dr. Berg from behind. And I, my note here is good. I hated him. (laughs) Yeah, I love that part. (laughs) So good. And he says to Helen, you're mine now. And undoes her straps before flying out the window. (laughs) And Helen also escapes out the window. And runs back to her apartment. She also, oh, she, um, like also wrestles a nurse to the ground and puts on her outfit, her uniform. And she goes back to her apartment for Trevor. God knows why. And. (laughs) Oh, I love when she walks in. This is so funny. It, I die when I see Stacy just immediately wither. Oh my god. Stacy is first of all like painting the apartment pink. Yes. So she's moved in with Trevor this already. It's been a month. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor is ready. And she's like completely taken over and she's like screaming and like shrinking from Helen and I mean it also it shows that Trevor has no loyalty to Helen. Um, mm-hmm. And it shows that he will replace her with like a younger model. Because <laughs> Stacy is basically just a younger Helen, to be honest. Oh, yeah. 
course. Um, and that this like it's very much like a white man sensibility he has here. Like he is in a bigger position of power than Helen at the university, and he can replace her with a student whenever he wants to. Um, Helen leaves and she hears Candyman in her head saying, they will all abandon you. All you have left is my desire for you. So hot, but also abusive. (laughs) Oh yeah, definitely abusive, but definitely hot. (laughs) Yeah. All you have left is my desire for you. Uh, Helen goes back to Cabrini Green and she finds a painting on the wall of Candyman's death. Um, also interesting because she's wearing the nurse's uniform that is very similar to a uniform that Anne Marie wears in the film. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. which is you know like in the beginning when she was wearing her quote unquote nondescript conservative outfit, she really stood out, and now she can sort of move it, like. In, now more within this space than she could ever before um yeah she looks like someone with a job finally <laughs> it, that's exactly it she looks like someone with a job yes she comes upon the sleeping candy man so interesting to me the candy man was sleeping <laughs> yeah like does he just rest in this lair all day <laughs> and she tries to stab him, but he wakes up and he tells her to surrender to him and the child won't be harmed. And she agrees and he carries her to like an altar, like a concrete slab and explains to her that they will obsessed. die. Obsessed. This is obsessed. <laughs> goth dream. The pain, I can assure you, it will be exquisite. Oh my God. <laughs> that and come with me and be immortal oh and my god our, na- our names will be written on a thousand walls yes <laughs> <laughs> they will die and give people something to be haunted by yeah lift up my dress with a hook sir <laughs> <laughs> oh my god when he's when he's like stroking her thigh with the hook yes are we just <laughs> fucking perverts? Like, yeah, of course. I feel like yeah, we are awful. Like, I know we're like, kill me with a hug. <laughs> Cover me in bees. <laughs> I mean, this has all the make. I mean, Clive Barker is a kinky little freak. Yeah, like, he really is. This is so erotic and. It's very typical of Clive Barker. Like, he often ties together eroticism and brutality. Mm -hmm. And it's... I I just... I guess I gotta wonder how people who aren't into weird shit sexually look at this movie. Um, Because I feel like it's very much like this and Hellraiser. The sexuality is very much there for people who actively explore the boundary between pleasure and pain in their sex lives like what do people i don't i think they're just scared by all of it right like oh all of this is scary right and it just lacks that dynamic for them which i'm sure it's still an excellent movie but for the rest of us i feel like we just get 
so many levels of entertainment and pleasure from this movie. Yeah, because that is the whole thing about kink sexuality is like being able to confront what is most horrifying yeah. and being able to confront it in a way that turns it into something pleasurable. And yeah. it's yeah, I just gotta wonder how like people who aren't kinky watch this and watch Hellraiser because I feel like, you know, I always like I was saying earlier, I always thought I was just like a perv for thinking that this was a hot <laughs> scene. <laughs> and then later finding from reading Clive Barker and Bernard Rose's what they had to say about it, that that was intentional. Um, yeah, is was very validating for me. <laughs> uh, Candyman like opens his fur coat and reveals that he his this corpse body, and it's swarming with bees. And he opens his mouth, which is also full of bees, <laughs> and kisses Helen with a mouth full of bees. Yes, and I love that kiss. It's hot. <laughs> <laughs> and Tony Todd also, like, they were going to figure out a way for him to not have to actually be covered in bees, but he was like, no, I'm going to do it. And <laughs> they strapped this elaborate apparatus to him that was filled with bees, and he actually put the bees in his mouth. Like, he's a badass. Yeah. Yeah. And the bees actually did sting him in his mouth. <laughs> Oh, and he had a dumped he had a dental dam in his mouth so that the bees wouldn't go down his throat. Oh my god, I did not know that. Yeah. It's Yes, representing for the dental dams. Okay. I know. Tony Todd, honorary lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> uh Candyman disappears again, leaving behind some more graffiti on the wall that says, It was always you, Helen. Surrounded by candles. And Helen sees that there's a painting of the girl that Candyman fell in love with on the wall. And it looks exactly like her. So there's some doppelganger themes also going on here. Like, is she, does she just look exactly like her? Or is she the reincarnation of her? And uh, she was never, she never experienced punishment for their transgression. So she needs to now experience it in the modern day. Um. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Speaking of Helen, when she's well, like next when she's climbing the trash pile and she falls. And oh she's, my like, god! This like the the misery of of the white savior. Yes, <laughs> just like cracking up at that. I mean, it's very well done and very like makes so much sense because. I mean, there's also, like, a lot of, you know, themes here of, like, the black man and the white woman and their role together historically. And it's it's complex. There's, there's a lot of complex stuff going on. Like, Daniel, Candyman, was commissioned to paint this white woman's portrait. And he is the he's the creator of her image and her myth. Like... The white man that murdered him commissioned a portrait of his daughter for him, using a black artist to control the image of his white wealth and status, which is epitomized by the prize of the beautiful white daughter, who also functions as currency, which a status that Daniel yeah. tarnishes by fucking her. 
and getting her pregnant. And now Candyman controls her image. Like he, it's, he like has taken that back and right. And is like (laughs) making her into a myth like him by like seeking, taking retribution on her. Um, it's, I mean, like, just the, also, like, there's even so much you could talk about just with the symbolism of portraiture and painting, like, that is also explored in this movie. There's a ton of paint in this movie, like, the graffiti, the murals, the story of Candyman being a painter, um, and just, like, the push and pull between the real and the painted image, uh, and yeah, I mean, it's and it's never like clear exactly if Helen is. I mean, this is also brings it back to Dracula because Dracula, um, like part of why he falls in love with Mina is because she looks like his love from hundreds of years ago. Yes. And so Candyman is kind of a Dracula figure as well. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, you could go even deeper with it because Dracula is was for Bram Stoker like the symbol of the foreign man, like taking away the good English women from the good English men. And Candyman literalizes that in like uh, from an American mythology of yes. like the black man taking away the 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 good white women. It's, I like. I just went on like a theory rampage there and like needed to take a breath. <laughs> <sighs> I love thinking about him as Dracula. Yes. He totally Even if I is. don't love the idea of like, you know, thinking that black men were stealing all the good white women, but knowing how black men have been portrayed um, literally and myth- mythologically like king kong black dracula that totally makes sense to me oh yeah and it's not even that i feel like that that the filmmakers are saying like oh um it's you know he's taking away the the good white women but that that is how his murderers see him yeah oh oh, in his legend yes yes um and then they by murdering him they made him into a mythic immortal figure uh who lives on and in this this like as a trauma ghost i mean it's just very i mean there's so many fucking layers in this movie um and now a very funny scene i mean funny to us (laughs) where helen is (laughs) climbing that pyre of chairs and mattresses because she hears uh baby anthony crying and she she you know she climbs the pyre to try to find the baby in there and she's like falling and she's just (laughs) manic at this point (laughs) and a crowd has gathered outside and they set the pyre on fire. And I was wondering, like, do you think that they set the pyre on fire because they think Helen is a murderer and they want her to burn? Or, like, or is this about, like, killing Candyman? Yeah, I think um, Dewan or the, the the one that's the actor's name, but the young boy. Jake. He sees the hook and he thinks Candyman is in the fire. 
and he's like oh he's in there and we have an opportunity to like burn him up i don't did they know helen was in there oh i don't Not, know i think she I crawls out it. with the baby right yeah i feel like when she crawls out with the baby they don't even know at first because she crawls she's like burnt up she's on fire right yeah i guess yeah. i didn't i didn't know if, if jake saw her crawling in there um and Candyman appears to Helen again in the pyre, grabbing her across the mouth. And Helen stabs Candyman with a piece of wood that's on fire and crawls with baby Anthony in her arms to rescue him out of the fire, even though she's also on fire and burning alive. And she makes it out of the burning pyre and crawls to Anne-Marie to give her baby Anthony. And she has so many fatal burns that she dies. This is a very dramatic, crazy scene. Yeah. Uh, Ugh, when all the bees fly out of the fire. Oh my god, yes. Like, there are so many places in this movie where there are bees where there would, like, never be bees. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, and it, I mean, it also speaks to, like, just fear of, like, or, I mean, they're just, like, highly symbolic. Um fucking trevor and stacy and purcell are at a small funeral service for helen this is yeah i was i'm interested to to hear what you make of this scene because i don't even know what i think about it when Anne marie shows up with all the residents of cabrini green including jake and jake takes out a giant hook from his coat and drops it in helen's grave yeah oh i love that shot where he's dropping it down into the grave yeah and like why do you think he's doing that well i i always assumed that they found the hook like in the pot like everything burned away except the hook <laughs> and that they i don't know why they would bury it with helen but it seems like there was some kind of aspect of closure and i love that shot where it shows um all of the black folks approaching the memorial site and trevor's face because i can just imagine how scared a dumbass like trevor would be if a large group of black folks came up to the memorial site um and i love that they wanted to bury that hook with her and i love how distraught trevor is afterwards <laughs> thinking about helen yes oh my god i mean i felt like the res the karini green residents had like achieved a kind of closure yeah and it wasn't so much that they were like quote-unquote paying their respects to helen as they were completing oh, yeah. bye bitch yeah. bye bitch like, yeah and also it. like completing yeah. a cycle um yeah. exactly and kind of assuring that Candyman will not come back by yeah. bearing his hook with his love. Yeah. I mean, I think Helen would be flattered by them. She would think it was them paying their respects. Because <laughs> I think, like, the, like, biggest high five you can give white folks is when black people, when you when white folks think black people have co-signed something or have, like, <laughs> shown their admiration. And it's like, no, this was just a, this was just the completion Right, it's the completion of a cycle and yeah. um like a res a respect for historical trauma that 
Helen and Trevor and Purcell don't have. Um, like the respect for having to to find closure and com- and find completion in something. Um. So Trevor ain't doing too hot. He's Mm-mm. back at the apartment and he's in the bathroom agonizing over Helen's death as he should be because he fucking sucks and abandoned right. his wife <laughs> for a like a what nineteen year old girl. Yeah. And he, Stacy is also hilarious. Like she's annoying him about dinner. (laughs) She, oh yeah, when she's pulling out the steak and like slamming it on the table, and she's like, "Let's make a salad together." I was like, "Yeah, I'm sure Trevor didn't like. He was thinking about his dick. He wasn't thinking Stacy. He wasn't thinking about the long term here." (laughs) Right. Exactly. Trevor has memories of Helen and cries like a stupid bitch. Is my note. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Trevor says Helen's name five times in the mirror and turns out the light, wondering what compels him to do this. And she appears as a beautiful corpse ghost covered in burns. Right, gorgeous. Gorgeous. <laughs> Best gorgeous. she's ever looked. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and she guts him from behind. And moans in like ecstasy as she's killing him uh and so again like murder and sexual ecstasy are very tied together mm-hmm. and there is a final shot of a mural of helen at cabrini green with a hook slash through it and she has now achieved the veneration and fame that she's so coveted. Right. What? Okay. Who painted this mural? Like, who are we to, <laughs> to suppose painted this? Like. I don't know. Yeah. It's so, or does it even exist? Like, it's, or did Candyman paint it? I feel it. Like, okay. Candyman painted it. Ooh, Candyman definitely painted it. Yeah, absolutely. Because yes. it's very much his style. <laughs> right. And, you know, he's the artist. Yes. Um I love that this I love like the hook slash going through it and uh that she's finally immortalized but she's dead and uh it's just such a perfect ending. I remember being so well that like strobe light bathroom thing with Trevor really freaked me out as a kid with her like burned head and all of that but this ending was so satisfying to me because it just made so much sense. It's extremely satisfying um, because, I mean, it's like a, it's, it's a very dark kind of like haha moment. <laughs> like, yeah. this is what you wanted. Like, you wanted to be immortalized for this story, and now you are. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. Congrats. <laughs> uh, sorry, your thesis never happened. Right. You had a lot of people had to die <laughs> for you to Which is like such a theme for Helen. It's like when you think about um who at like the black folks that were displaced um for her to end up where she was living, the the black folks that were caused harm during her research, the like just everything. Yes. Yeah. She was always out for herself. Um 
and I also can't stop thinking about when she did meet Anne-Marie and the baby Anthony, how she was like petting the baby with her gloves on. Oh my God, <laughs> like, your dirty ass gloves. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, did you touch my baby with your gloves on? I do not think so. And there's, she's so condescending to Anne-Marie. Yeah. Like very much like I have to think about the history of like white so ethnographers coming into yes. communities yes, and definitely. taking over and I mean it's just very smart and I feel I don't know like how much do we think was in, like a, how much of that do we feel like is intentional and how much of that do we feel like mm. is accidental because Bernard Rose and Clive Barker are white and of course they would write something like that like yeah I mean, I would like to think that, you know, they were aware of some of that, but I think it's just like such a natural part of white people's interactions with black folks that it, yeah, that it very easily could have just been coincidence. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's so, yeah, I I would like to feel like this was all written intentionally, but who knows? yeah it's, oh my god what a journey what a journey oh my what god a journey thank I you i love how on your show annie well i love so many things about your show but i love how you go through the plot and discuss you discuss each piece because uh as you know because you listen to my show a lot it doesn't always happen um well you have so many more guests we're discussing the movies yeah we have lots of you know hosts, so many more hosts yeah. and whatnot but um uh, it means a lot to me to go through this movie in this way. I really appreciate you saying that. You know, I've struggled with, um, and I'll keep this in the episode. You know, people can weigh in if they want to, but I've struggled with if I should keep doing the scene by scene analysis uh, because I, I guess I just wonder if people are actually interested in that. But you and and Sam and. Uh, a couple other people have said that they really appreciate the format of this show of like yeah really digging in and going scene by scene and that's part of why i wanted to start this podcast because i didn't see anybody else doing that so i yeah totally yeah you just get to nerd the fuck out like if it's your movie you're like oh hell yeah i want to talk about every single scene oh yeah i mean and especially with yeah. this movie it's like there's so much there like yeah it's uh, in, it's incredibly important movie in the history of horror um and obviously influenced jordan peele who mm-hmm. basically revolutionized horror with get out yeah. so it's an honor to talk about it and it's an honor to talk about it with somebody who i admire so much and care about so much and (laughs) and i'm so glad that thank you for letting me like just go on my insane theory rants uh oh no it's like my honor to listen i think that every time i listen to your show and it like makes me work harder on my own show because i'm like I, I I like am inspired by you constantly and the knowledge that you bring to each piece that you put out. And um, you know, it's like made me step up my game and Oh my god, I'm on because it's just so interesting. And you know, it's just like 
I love what you bring to it. And so it, you know, I am so happy to be here talking with you about it, especially this movie. And I'm just so glad that, you know, the internet led us to each other. (laughs) I know. It's so great. And yeah, I mean, it's, I have always like been obsessed with picking apart movies and it's, I, I also just love like people's selections and this one, like I sort of asked you to be on and do, and do this movie. And I'm really glad that we could do it together. And I feel like um, I've, I've been wanting to do this movie since it, it, like I said, it is genuinely one of my favorite horror movies. So I've been wanting to do this since I started the podcast and nobody has picked it yet. I'm so glad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so selfish. I'm yeah. And I'm glad that we specifically got to do it together. And, um, it's, I, I just can't say enough about how important I think this movie is like, regardless of the creator's intentions, it, he says so much about how we see the horror and trauma and legacy of slavery in this country. Like, even yeah. if they didn't intend those things, the things are still there. Um, and it's, I mean, it's just like everything about it. Like the acting is so good. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And like Philip Glass's score and Oh my god. Tony Todd. <laughs> Tony Todd. And also Tony Todd just seems to be such a genuinely cool and nice guy that it makes me love it even more. Yeah, I mean and Bernard Rose also was saying when I was reading interviews with him that he loves Tony Todd and that Tony Todd <laughs> is like actually a really nice person. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. Yeah. And I mean in horror noir, Tony Todd also I mean, if, if people haven't seen Horror Noir, like, go watch it. It's on yes. Amazon. It's on Shutter. Like, you have no excuse. Go watch Horror Noir. Yes, please go watch it. And I also need to read the book that it's based on. Um, and it's... It, Tony Todd has some also really interesting reflections on playing this character in that documentary. Ugh. He does. And I feel so honored that I got to go to the horror noir premiere in LA and I got to like hear Tony Todd in person talk about it. And oh my God, what did he say? It, it was like, well, I think selfishly, <laughs> I started thinking like to myself in that moment, like, oh my God, I can't believe that if you would have told me, you know, in like 96 or whenever I watched this movie that like X amount of years later, I'd be sitting in Hollywood you know, a few feet in front of Tony Todd hearing him talking about this, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have believed it. And I think I actually had a moment of like, oh, maybe, maybe life, even if it is a bunch of coincidences, maybe like yours is going to work out just okay. (laughs) Like I had some kind of weird, silly moment of like, wow, this is so cool. And it was definitely just like a geek, a geek, like nerd moment, but, uh, iconic that's wonderful i I love it (laughs) like as someone who's pretty candid about struggling with suicidal ideation and i know that you and i have talked about this like yeah sometimes those those moments are necessary and hell yeah you know people always talk about like oh you have to live for your family and it's like maybe i just have to live for the little moments like this and 
maybe that is what's going to keep me going. Like, yeah, I mean, for lots of people, their family is their like personal source of horror. Yes. Like they're not like living your for your family. You're like, I'm actually trying to die because of my family. Right. But these other moments that have like spoken out to us as children or like as we've grown up and now, you know, both of us have like these little side jobs where like part of what we do is to discuss this. I think it's like just a really romantic story. <laughs> I mean, it's a, I mean, I always say this like, Oh, to my patrons on my, my page. I'm like, I cannot believe you guys pay for this. <laughs> and I mean, not to undercut how hard I've worked on this. Cause I have and I don't I don't think that it's just come to me because, you know, for no reason. I'm not saying that, but it's I I mean, it's a an honor that people listen and that people pay to to listen to more content. And it's I mean, I am now sort of been able to steer myself on a path that is more of what I actually want to do in life. And I feel like if we have to spend so much fucking time of our life working, like I might as well enjoy mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, just amazing. And I'm so glad that we have like this little community and our our little horror queer community. Yes. And <laughs> it's so, I, I mean, it just is one of the things that makes me feel less alone and, makes me yeah, feel me like too. i should keep going hell yeah uh, sure. and and that's um important and uh i mean a lot of people you know so much of what is traumatizing for us is like historical trauma that acts itself out in our everyday lives and that is very uh interestingly explored in Candyman. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm really honored uh, that we talked about it. And me too. I can't wait to watch the sequel tonight. <laughs> yes. Ooh, maybe I'll watch it on my flight. Yes. You should farewell to the flesh. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't wait for the reboot also. Oh my um, God. Yes. I'm really interested to see what they do with that. Uh, so where can people find you on social media? Yeah, uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Black Cupcake, and it's B-L-A-K-K-C-U-P-C-A-K-E. Um, and you can find, uh, you can get to uh, the podcast that I co-host at Queer Wolf Pod, and you can get to my art page, which is Gaudy Los Angeles, all through my main Instagram. Yeah yay and as always you can find me on twitter and instagram at girls guts giallo and you can find my patreon at patreon.com slash girls guts giallo you can send me an email if you want i'm taking a social media break at girls guts giallo at gmail.com so contact me there and until next time i'm annie rose malamet and i'll see you next friday